0: everyone. So this episode is going to be a little bit more serious in tone. And it's because we're going to be talking about what's going on right now, and what's been going on for far too long. And that's injustice and inequality. This podcast, as you know, it's ultimately about justice. And Tyler and I have missed this crucial lens of racial injustice. And that's something that's totally on us.
1: Yeah. We really have. And Brittany and I have spent a lot of time the past few weeks really reflecting on ourselves and educating ourselves because there's a lot that we didn't know, which is so fucked up, but we needed to educate ourselves. I mean, let's be real. The history we all learned in school was completely whitewashed. Yeah. For example, Brittany and I went to public school in Oklahoma. I didn't know about the Tulsa Race Riots. We had a class specifically, everyone took, Oklahoma history. We didn't learn about the Tulsa Race Riots. And I didn't know they were a thing. I hadn't heard the phrase Tulsa Race Riots until a friend mentioned it in high school. And my immediate thought was like racing. Like, like horse horse racing. race or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that, a riot from that. And I mean, this year... Oklahoma announced they're gonna start teaching that it's really been almost hundred years. Yeah.
0: I'm glad they finally announced it, but it's one of those things that we have an opportunity right now to truly reeducate ourselves and learn history from all the perspectives because this is just one example. There's a lot more. There's so much of our history, our dark American history with the mistreatment of black people. That you're not taught and you don't learn. And you need to seek out that information. And right now, everyone should be taking that opportunity.
1: Exactly. We should not be waiting to be taught. We need to be taking the initiative ourselves and learning and having these conversations, educating ourselves. It's on all of us.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I've been doing, Netflix has a Black Lives Matter collection. So I've been going through and watching a lot of these documentaries that are on there. I've also been watching just some other very high-profile movies and documentaries. One in particular, you've probably heard a lot about it. It's a movie that came out last year called Just Mercy. And there's also a documentary on HBO called True Justice. And it's about Bryan Stevenson. And he was a Harvard editor educated lawyer. He's a black man that grew up in Delaware. And after he graduated with his law degree, he moved down to Alabama and he started the Equal Justice Initiative. And what they do is provide legal representation for people on death row. And a lot of the times, these people on death row in Alabama were black men who were wrongfully accused and put you know given the death sentence and just mercy there's a book that he wrote about this case but it's about Walter McMillan who was put on death row in Monroeville Alabama for killing a white woman he didn't do it and it's it really is a movie slash also the documentary itself really gives this great lens into the reality of our country still today. Because when I tell you about this, I'm sure I, th- I was talking to someone and they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's crazy, imagining this was in like the 50s or 60s. No, he started EJI in 1989. This was in my lifetime. And a lot of you listeners, it may have been just before yours. So it's not old. And just as a reminder, We are donating all of our June Patreon proceeds to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Ty and I are actually going to be matching that. We talked about this, uh, I believe, in the last episode, but just wanted to give you guys a reminder that that is another step that we're taking, and it's donating, showing support. That's, That's another way.
1: It's another tangible action that you can take that has impact.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Also, if you are not part of our Patreon community, but you still want to contribute, please feel free. You can send us your donations, your contributions through PayPal. You just send it to our email, bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. And anything we get through PayPal, we will add to our contribution to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund.
0: Well, with that, Ty, I think, do you want to, let's just go ahead and jump into our topic
1: Yeah, I think we should uh, definitely just jump right into topic. This is, um, I'm predicting going to be a long and very intense episode. So...
0: Agreed. We are going to be talking about riots. This is something that is so prevalent right now in our history, like in our present. We want to talk about some historical riots that have helped change our nation. And Tyler and I recognize how uncomfortable this conversation is and that's exactly why we're having this conversation
1: i think it's so important to recognize that these are conversations uncomfortable to have i know for me there are a lot of times i have felt uncomfortable having conversations specifically about race because i'm white and i don't feel like i don't feel like i'm the appropriate messenger or it's not an experience i understand racism and It's uncomfortable, but the thing is, we need to be comfortable being uncomfortable because it's so much more important to have these conversations as uncomfortable as they may be than to ignore them because it's, oh, that's a subject that's like, that makes me feel weird talking about it. So we're just going to not talk about it because as white people, we have that privilege that we don't have to think about race every day. Exactly. We live our lives not having to, I mean, not having to think about our race and how it affects, and that's not true for people of color. So the the fact that we get to say, this conversation makes me uncomfortable, so I'm not going to have it, is so rooted in white privilege and is one of the reasons why, fuck that, we need to be uncomfortable, we need to have this conversation, because if you're not having it, you're not letting other people's voices be heard.
0: Exactly. And this is, like I said at the beginning, we are a podcast that is rooted in injustice and inequality, and we're not talking about racism enough. And that is a huge factor when it comes to both of those. And so
1: we're mm-hmm. doing it. And I mean, riots in of themselves, it's like Martin Luther King Jr. said, riots are the language of the unheard. And For my case, which, sneak preview, I'm doing Stonewall. I'm kind of combining this with it being Pride Month, but I think one of the most important things about Stonewall that so many people, both a part of and outside of the LGBTQ community, forget is that Stonewall was led by trans women of color, and the impact it's had on the LGBTQ community is so huge that I'm having trouble finding words to describe it, honestly.
0: Well, it's what rooted gay rights. It's what
1: started the movement. And the gay rights movement is one that could not have happened and would not have happened without the civil rights movement preceding it. And I also think that Stonewall is something a lot of people don't really know about. Like, oh, the gays fought. But anyway, it's not time for my case yet. Um, I will go into all of this soon. But Brittany, wine.
0: Yes. Tyler, what wine did you pick for this episode?
1: So- The wine I'm drinking today, I think it, Brittany, I know it's going to surprise you listeners. I think it's really going to surprise a lot of (laughs) y'all because I'm drinking the Barefoot Pinot Grigio from California.
0: Could you have picked a, you know what? No, I'm not going to judge because to be totally honest, I've never had the Barefoot Pinot Grigio because I would never pick it up. So you'll have to tell me how that one is.
1: Well, so I wanted to specifically get Barefoot because, tied into my case, Barefoot wine has always been such a huge supporter of Pride and has been donating and been a part of it since like 1988. Whoa! Which is insane. And I know we've shit-talked barefoot before, but I was like, you know what? I can drink a cheap wine even if it's like a cheap cab, even a bad one you still drink. So I went to Walgreens to get barefoot and my options that they had, red Moscato, Moscato, Riesling, And Pinot Grigio. And I was like, well, okay, I'm going to drink Pinot Grigio. You know,
0: I will say Barefoot has bubbles and their bubbles are good. Like if you're looking for an inexpensive sparkling wine for like mimosas or just because you want inexpensive sparkling wine, theirs is good. Better than Andre's.
1: Well, and honestly, I think this will be interesting to see. Is this wine actually that bad? Or is it just like has that reputation because the bottle was $5? so i'm out we'll see because the reviews i was reading for it people liked it i found this one that someone wrote that was like specific and very perfect they said it was pale straw color medium plus body on the nose there's peach apricot yellow and green apples pear melon lemon and orange peel there's also honey and a little bit of like flint and wet stone for taste it's a pretty clean mouthfeel and it's basically the same profile as the smell. You have the stone fruits, some tropical fruits, citrus peel, and honey. And it's also a little bit like chalky and flinty. Um, has a little bit of floral accents there, too. Uh, apparently, medium long finish with a crisp and medium plus acidity. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a good fucking wine.
0: Well, have you ever stopped to think that maybe it's popular for a reason? because it's good and it's cheap. And think about it. We drink cheap wine 24-7. You know, why can't this one also be a good cheap wine?
1: I mean, honestly, the price does not indicate quality as much as you'd think. One of my favorite wines is Two Buck Chuck. And that's literally the cheapest wine I've ever seen in my entire life. And I love it. Especially the Shaw, the organic one's a dollar more. It's a great wine.
0: Well, and those... The Shaw, I believe, is a little bit better. Because one thing, in cheaper wines, sometimes they do have artificial added flavors. And we've talked about that in episodes past. Maybe it was in a Bottle Talk episode. But if you like the taste, then what does it matter if some of the flavors were artificial?
1: True. So I'm going to drink this. I'm going to support the gay community. Or I guess I already did. I bought the wine. They donate proceeds to Pride. So yay, gays. That's me. Also, it's a screw top. Oh. I mean, it it smells like a fine Pinot Grigio. I don't mind Pinot Grigio as much as you do.
0: Maybe I just need to stop being
1: so afraid of it. Very citrusy smell. Okay, so yeah, I'm drinking Barefoot. Brittany, what are you drinking?
0: Well, you know, this is funny because last time you did a Pinot Grigio, which Barefoot's from California. Where's Barefoot?
1: Yeah, it's actually Napa Valley.
0: It's Napa. So... Last time you did a Pinot Grigio, it was an Italian one, and I did an Italian wine. Well, what's kind of funny, I'm doing a Zinfandel, but it's a Zinfandel from Italy, not a Zinfandel from California. So it is the 2018 Caleo Zinfandel from Puglia, Italy. Uh, I looked up how to say that word. I still may not have said it the best, but I did better than last time. But what I find funny is it's like you have a Pinot Grigio, which I associate with Italian wines, and I'm doing a Zinfandel, which I generally associate with like American wines, but it's Italian.
1: No, totally. We kind of switch things up a little bit without meaning to.
0: So this wine is an intense purple color. It tends to actually lean a little bit towards amber when it's starting to age. It has a very solid structure, which is because it has an elevated alcohol level. And there's a nice balance between the soft tannins and the acidity. So it's not too tannic. It's not too acidic. It's fruity with notes of plum, cherry, marmalade, and tobacco. And it also has some nice jammy notes of blackberry, boysenberry, and darkberry. So like I said, this is an intense wine. It is very full-bodied. And it pairs well with things like beef, pasta, lamb, poultry, so a little bit heartier meats.
1: Ugh, yum.
0: Right? Doesn't that sound like really good? Just like is it just me or does shepherd's pie yes. sound amazing right now?
1: No. What the hell? That does <laughs> not sound good right now.
0: I love shepherd's pie. I, mean, I,
1: I don't like mashed potatoes, so.
0: What? I've seen you eat mashed potatoes.
1: I mean, they're fine. I, do, I will never crave mashed potatoes. But I was thinking like braised short ribs. But sure, you have your shepherd's pie. I'll have my braised short ribs.
0: Okay, well, it's fine. Maybe I just want a big steak, okay? This mm-hmm. wine, reading reviews, it's a really, really nice, bold wine. Great budget wow words it's a good budget wine bold intense it's ten dollars from total wine and people seem to be very pleased with what they got for 10 bucks
1: oh that's pretty that's very like is ornate the right word
0: yeah it ornate and kind of swirly makes me think of a chalkboard a little bit anyway it's a screw top wow That smells very fruity. I remember when I used to drink Zinfandel so much and I was like, oh, this is like so bold and crazy. And it is, but it's also so fruity. Not in a bad way, but compared to my palate now and how it used to be, you really do like I can immediately smell all of this dark fruit.
1: Yeah, that's actually one thing I've noticed with your palate over the two years plus we've done this podcast, is you're noticing a lot more of the fruit flavors in things like cabs and zins and stuff.
0: Yeah, they scream out at me now, but I think we should try these wines.
1: Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Wow.
0: I want to hear about this barefoot. Tell me about it.
1: It's very lemony and minerally. Like a, uh, what's the, the P, like a Perrier, the water bottles that are like lemon mineral water. That's the flavors I'm getting. I mean, it's a little bit, it's acidic, it's very citrusy, almost not metallic, but it's not bad. When I was listening to the review and hearing, and by listening to the review, I mean saying it, I was surprised how many different flavor and smell notes were in it because usually from what I've seen, the more notes and the different it is, the like better the wine is. And so I was like, oh shit, that's a lot. This is more of what I expected. I'm not getting all of those. I'm pretty much just getting like lemon and mineral, uh, but it's not bad. This is a totally solid Pinot Grigio. You seem pleased. I mean, I'm gonna have no problem finishing this bottle. What percentage are we looking at?
0: probably 12
1: 12.5 12. yeah so what what's uh what's the zen like
0: this is very good it is smooth it's very beautiful which may sound weird when i'm talking about a wine but it it just feels so nice the acidity is not it's not there it's not harsh a lot of the red wines i drink now they're very acidic this one is is nice mm-hmm. it's it's smooth down i said smooth like seven times It's very fruit forward. I'm getting a lot of those deep dark berries like the blackberry and boysenberry. Little notes of plum. I don't get any cherry. I don't really get tobacco. More so I'm getting spices. And I just realized it has some stuff on the side. Yeah, fruity and spicy. That's what I'm getting. The description I read online said tobacco, but I'm getting spices. And it is... A very dark, intense color. Look how dark this wine is. It's like black. Wow. Yeah. So you can barely see a hint of a little bit through it. You can't on the camera, but I can, like looking out the window. I can't see through it. It is totally opaque. Is that the right one? Yeah. Where you can't see through it. So I'm happy with this wine. I can see why people said this was an excellent value for your money. It reminds me of Seven Deadly Zens, which is like 18 to $20, depending on where you go. This was 10 and I think it's very, very comparable.
1: Well, all right. We have our wines, and I'm going to go pop mine in the fridge, and then I'm jumping into my case. Okay. So, like I said earlier, the case I'm doing is the Stonewall Riots, and the sources I used—get ready, there's a thousand—I <laughs> used— 3 wikipedia pages, the wikipedia pages for Stonewall Riots, Marsha P Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, an article from history.com by the history.com editors, an article from Encyclopedia Britannica by the Encyclopedia Britannica editors, an article in The Atlantic by Garrance Frank Ruta, a CNN article by Emanuela Grinberg, an article in The Harvard Gazette by Colleen Walsh an article in the New York Times by Julia Jacobs, and then the documentary Stonewall Forever from New York City's LGBT Community Center that was directed by Roe Haver. And y'all, this documentary is so important and it's on YouTube. It's like 20 minutes long. You have to watch it, y'all.
0: You have been telling me to do that and it is now, I'm, I'm skyrocketing that one on my list because you've been telling me for the last like, multiple times the last couple of weeks, but you've been telling me for a while that I need to watch that freaking documentary.
1: I mean, that documentary, I saw it last year. It was made for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which was last June. And my work did an event. We watched it, watched the premiere. And that was the first time in my life that I was ever proud to be gay. It's so important. Y'all have to watch it. Yeah. So today I'm going to talk about Stonewall Riots. It is one of the most impactful, one of the most important moments for LGBTQ rights in U.S. history. But before I really get into Stonewall, I think it is vital to really understand the setting and try to get an idea of what it's like to be a member of the LGBTQ community in the years before the first brick was thrown. And to do that, I'm going to talk about a little bit of the history before and mindset, but I'm also going to say my story just to get like kind of the personal, I know all the details, I can literally tell you all this. And if y'all didn't know by my everything about me, I'm a gay man. And I also know that my story, it's not universal. My experiences are not going to be those that everyone's faced, but I just, I like the idea of being able to provide like one perspective because I think it might help set the stage and give a little bit of insight and understanding into why, like, myself and millions of others are still alive today because of Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many others. So I first, like, realized something was different in, like, fifth grade-ish. There wasn't ever, like, a moment, but, you know, as my friends started liking people of the opposite sex, I didn't. And was starting to, like, people same-sex. And it was terrifying. But I don't even think I knew the word gay or, like, what it meant. I'm sure I knew the word. But I don't think I knew what it meant. Because not that long after, I learned what it meant. And I remember specifically that just, like, paralyzing terror of, like, oh, fuck. That's, that's me. Because really all I knew is that gay was bad. And... I was like, I'm going to do everything I can and put all that I have into killing this and not, not, no, I'm going to be straight. That's what we're doing. And then puberty hit. Went into middle school, puberty hit, and it it was hard. It was like I was in kind of a fight or flight response at all times. Because, of course, I'm a young preteen at this point, and my friends, every fourth word out of their mouth is a gay joke or something and hearing the word gay and knowing that that's like my deepest darkest secret that this thing I'm fighting against fight or flight kicks in always I spent middle school in fight or flight it was it was some real real dark times and I remember specifically in seventh grade I was like 12 like crying and realizing that this was not something I could kill because I was trying so hard to get aroused by like women and I couldn't and it like sunk in and fucking broke me and that was I don't think anything up until that point had broken me like that and you know as I started to realize I can't kill this but I can Shift all that energy I've been putting, try to stop it, into burying it. It might not be able to die, but I can sure as fuck bury it. And so that's what I did. And I went into high school and started to, like, I moved into a different friend group, basically, that was a lot more accepting and open. And I was able to start, like, pulling down my walls. And because of them, I was able to get to a point where I I was... Honestly, accept it is the right terminology. Because it was like accepting a defeat. Because it it still wasn't a happy thing for me or something to be proud of. It was just like, well, this isn't ever going away. And if I want to live my life, it's gonna be a part of it, so fuck it. And then also, so I came out in high school. I was like fifteen. And the day it happened, I had already come out to some of my friends, and then I guess it got leaked, but I realized like in the morning that, oh shit, other people know. And by the end of the day, everyone's going to know. And I had this moment of like, you know what? If there's going to be this narrative about me, I'm going to be the fucker who writes it. So I told my friends, I was like, spread it. Fuck it. <laughs> Tell everyone. And then there was this moment in Seventh Hour when this asshole guy was like, try to fucking use my secret as a weapon and be like, you know he's gay. And he got responses from of like, yeah, we know he told us already.
0: That's exactly what you wanted.
1: Oh my God. It felt, it was like my Mean Girls moment kind of thing. You know, I also, at, at that point, I had started to be more open about it. You know, going to, uh, we had the rec room in Oklahoma City. It's a under 21 drag club. You could be like 16 and go in. And that was the first time in my life I was ever, surrounded by other gay people. Because my high school was huge. We had, like, my class was 700 people. But I think by the time I graduated, five of us were out that I knew of. Which, the number I always hear is, like, 10% of the population is gay or LGBT in general. And I'm like, hmm, that's 70 of y'all. Also, you know, grew up in Oklahoma. And my high school experience was not that bad. I had a friend who, one of the fucking homophobic assholes in our class tried to run him over in the parking lot with his truck so it was not a safe atmosphere and then in college that was when i had my first boyfriend i went to ou it's in norman it's like far and away considered the most progressive city in oklahoma but we still got like beer bottles thrown at us because we were holding hands and at this point it was it was still very much like an accepting i was being gay like in my mind there was always the fuck I'm gay. It's who I am. But if there was a pill that turned you straight, I would be the first person in line. Because being gay meant I had to accept a lot of shit. Life was going to be hard. I learned from a very young age that if I'm in a job interview, I need to deepen my voice. I need to act straight. And that's just habit. That's how I interview now. Because you can't can't be gay in an interview. It's not safe. And just until last week, shit, you could get fired for being gay or being trans and can't do anything about it. It's legal. You know, deciding, oh, at my desk, I'm going to have a picture of, like, me and my husband. Taking that risk of, like, family photo is taking the risk of losing your job. And I also, I was like, I'm never going to be able to get married. Because at this point, marriage wasn't legal. And even though... I know logically, you know, I can adopt. I've always wanted to be a dad. Like that's, since I was like a a kid, I want to be a parent.
0: Yeah, you've always talked about that.
1: But being gay, in my mind, that meant that's, I can't, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to have kids. Because, yeah, I know you can adopt, but I had never met, I never knew any friends or anyone in school who had gay parents. I'd never seen a gay couple with kids like that. So I was like, I, I don't know. It it just felt like there are so many things that I'm like, well, this is who I am. And I've lost half my fucking goals. I also know though, that all things considered, my story is easy. One of the better ones. Did I lose friends? Yes. Did I lose family members? Yes. But I didn't get kicked out. My immediate family never stopped loving me. That's not the reality for so many people. And you know kind of flash forward to just last year seeing the Stonewall Forever documentary it was the first time i ever realized that the lgbtq community we have our own history we have our own culture and i was i, I was like watching that realization and those vital important moments right before my eyes and discovering that because in my mind gay community meant you know like oh like liking the same sex or oh yeah, we go to gay clubs, drag and stuff. But realizing this culture, this fight, this history that I'd never learned. I'd never knew anything about. Right. I'd known Stonewall. I'd known the name. I knew it was, oh yeah, that's kind of what started gay rights. But I couldn't tell you if it was, oh, was it kind of like the first parade or whatever? I didn't know. And so watching that documentary, was i mean it was honestly it was the first time i ever felt proud to have this history and be a part of this community and for this to not be something that i i can be me in spite of it was i can be me because of and so that's my experience that's a little personal experience to get you all on the mindset because that's also the experience of someone born in 1993 i i was able to live and be young through huge changes in laws It was so much worse back before Stonewall. So I'm going to jump into like a little bit of the history background.
0: Well, before you jump into your case, I just want to say thank you for being so raw and so honest and sharing that. I feel like a lot of that I knew, but a lot of that I didn't know. And hearing your story from the moment you realized you're gay and how you fought against that and how you had that mentality that it was so wrong. I mean, it it breaks my heart because i know a lot of that you were doing internally completely alone and it wasn't until you truly had friends that were supportive and there for you that you felt more comfortable to be who you are still uncomfortable but more comfortable mm-hmm. and i think it's such a difficult but also beautiful narrative because it shows why supporting everyone and and equal justice and just equality. It's so important because if you hadn't had friends who had your back, who knows where you could be. Thank you for sharing all of that.
1: Yeah. I actually last night was like, I'm going to just like write this down, put it in my notes. And then it became like a multi-page essay. So I was like, "Uh, nope, not going to do that then. That's too long. But I just think it's important to like give a little bit of insight into like The personal story of it, but also to understand I had it so much better than so many other people. Yeah. So today and then, because what the air and the atmosphere around the LGBT community was before Stonewall, we got to go back to right after World War II. Because after World War II, that was when McCarthyism came into play. And McCarthyism was, it's generally talked about as this like very anti-communist red scare kind of, where anything that could be seen as communist or abnormal, no, that is un-American. That is the worst thing you can do. And when I say that like, it's this very anti-communist like thing, it's like something out of like a post-apocalyptic novel. Joseph McCarthy was a senator. That's why it's called McCarthyism. He like started it. He would conduct hearings searching for communists that were in the U.S. government, in the army, in agencies and institutions. And this set off as national paranoia. Like, are your neighbors secretly communists? Is the woman who checks you out at the grocery store, is she going to be the person who leads the Soviets to dropping the nukes on you? And so people like communists or people in the LGBTQ community or people of color, they were deemed un-American And they were security risks. And gay men and lesbians were included on this list specifically by the U.S. State Department because they could be susceptible to blackmail. So they could be Russian spies. And so, at this time, things kind of kick into, like, full gear to stop the gay. In 1950, there was a Senate investigation. And in the report, they said that it's generally believed that those who engage in overt acts of perversion lack the emotional stability of normal persons. And they said that all the government intelligent agencies are in complete agreement that sex perverts in government constitute security risks. So people were immediately being denied jobs, immediately being denied stuff in the military for being suspected of being gay. And throughout the 50s and 60s, the FBI and police departments, they kept lists of people that were, like, known homosexuals. Oh, my God. Um, Oh, I mean, it's, when I say it's some, like, Hunger Games sounding shit, lists of people that are known to be gay and where they frequent, um, who their friends were. The post office kept track of their addresses, and any time something that could be seen as, like, gay went through the mail, they noted that. They're like, this is the address it was sent to, and sent it to the FBI. And state and local governments closed down bars that catered to gay men and women, shut them down, and the customers were arrested. They were exposed in newspapers. And at this time, they outlawed wearing clothes of the opposite gender. So someone dressing in drag, that's illegal. That gets you sent to jail. Also, being gay gets you sent to jail.
0: So wait, I just want to take like 10 steps back. They wrote, if something looked gay in the mail, they noted that. I mean, it's not like people are mailing dildo shaped boxes. Like what? How do you identify a piece of mail as gay?
1: I don't know how you would other than opening
0: it. Yeah, because I think of most packages... Unless, it's sometimes there's like a brand logo on a box if you order it. Like, I mean, terrible example, but like Amazon. This is Amazon Prime. But there could be anything in that box. But so, that makes me think there was invasion of mail, like opening their mail, which, that's like so not right.
1: Oh, 100%.
0: Also, everything else you said is horrendous as
1: well. Well, and just keep in mind as I'm saying all of this, that this is just being, this is just sexuality and gender identity. This isn't even taking... All of the different shit that people of color are facing at this time. Right. So it's so much worse because then you take into account redlining and shit. But in 1952, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual as a mental disorder. And so now it became commonplace, gays to be sent to jail, to be sent to asylums... And I mean, throughout this time, like, being gay is illegal. Mm-hmm. Having If you're caught having gay sex, you will be sent to jail. Which, they, that was a law and, for a really
0: long time, wasn't it? Like, until recently, right?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you at the end uh, just how recently.
0: No, I have an idea, and it's... no.
1: And so because of everything that was going on in the 50s and 60s, LGBTQ individuals and people in the gay community, I, I'm i going to use them kind of interchangeably. I mean, the when I say gay community, I mean for it to encompass, like, sexuality and gender identity and, like, all of it. Members of the community would flock to gay bars or clubs, places of refuge, but they weren't gay bars. They were just bars that people, like, kind of kind of knew, like, oh, this is a safe one. Right. It's not going to have a rainbow flag or any signage that's, like, gays are welcome. But it's going to be known, like, oh, that's safe for all of us. The owners are good and that's kind of as a community where we can go and literally the only place outside of your home that you can let your guard down and be yourself
0: word of mouth i'm assuming was huge in knowing these places Mm -hmm. i mean because like you said there's no signage there's no anything it's like you have to know someone who knows someone who knows
1: oh yeah i mean they were they were fucking speakeasies basically yes but in new york state the liquor authority When they caught wind of these places, of bars that were serving alcohol to known or suspected LGBTQ individuals, they would shut them down. And they argued that, like, just a gathering of homosexuals was disorderly conduct. But thanks to activist efforts and push, those regulations were actually overturned in New York in 1966. And now LGBTQ patrons could be served alcohol legally. Because you literally couldn't before.
0: What's the reasoning behind that? Like, why could people in the LGBTQ community not get alcohol?
1: Like, could not be served? Because it was different and wrong and un-American. It, a lot of it stems from McCarthyism, from very, like, you know, conservative, restrictive, like, religious views. Like, I mean, shit, puritanical stuff from the founding of America, like, that setting a lot of things setting the stage.
0: So was it like the thought that they would get too rowdy and like, oh, gay people are being rowdy. That's extra bad. Or was it just literally, oh, you're gay. So you just, you can't have this. This is something that.
1: Yeah. I think it was more of the second one. I think it was more of like, oh, they're gay. That's horrifying. That's not normal. And at this time, again, anything that could be seen as gay behavior in public is illegal. Holding hands, kissing, dancing with someone who's the same sex illegal. And so police would harass gay bars all the time and do these busts and see if they caught patrons of the same-sex holding hands or shit. All these raids happened. So in 1966, the Stonewall Inn, it very quickly became a very important Greenwich Village institution in New York City. It was a big place, it was cheap to enter, and it welcomed drag queens, which at the time, drag queen didn't mean exactly what it means today. It wasn't just cisgendered men or women like dressing as the opposite gender. It also was kind of an umbrella term used for uh, transgendered people who would dress to their actual gender identity, to who they were. Right. So, like a, a trans woman wearing a dress might be referred to as a drag queen in this time, and it was part of the culture. It's it's something that is not is not okay today. I would never dream of calling a trans person a saying they're in drag, but at the time it was like what they would call themselves kind of thing. Right. But most gay clubs and gay bars at this time that were just finally legalized, they turned away members of the trans community because even still, even in the gay community and it's as true today as it is as it was then, there's still so much racism sexism biases i mean even in this oppressed community that just finally it's finally legal for us to come together they're still saying oh no you're outcasts you're others we're okay not you exactly my god fucking gross but the stonewall inn was a place where they were welcomed and it was also a place where many homeless gay youths and runaways were able to go And also, still very true today. But again, at this time, coming out as a youth means becoming homeless. Like that, that's what it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, people being kicked out of their homes and being disowned essentially by their families or not being able to lease a place or buy a place, just like all of that.
1: And it, I mean, that happens today way too often. But then it was the norm. And the Stonewall was. One of, if not the only gay bar left that allowed dancing. So it it was this hub for the community. And raids happened all the time. Usually, corrupt cops would tip off bars that were owned by the mafia. By the way, most gay bars were owned by the mafia. Because if the owners are victimized, you can victimize them more. So usually... Many of the gay bars, they're mafia-owned, they'd get word from corrupt cops, and they would be able to, like, stash the alcohol away and, like, hide the illegal activities. But in the early morning hours, like 1 a.m. on June 28th, 1969, the Stonewall Inn was raided by surprise. They had no warning this time. The police came in with a warrant, and they entered the club and just started, like, beating people. There were about 200 people in the bar at the time. And there were a lot of patrons that had never experienced a police raid, so they don't know what the fuck is going on. But then they started to kind of realize what's happening. People were running out of the doors, out of the windows in the bathroom, and then police barred the doors so no one could get out. But the, the raid didn't go as planned. The standard procedure at the time was to line up the patrons, check their ID, and then female police officers would take the customers that were wearing women's clothing to the bathroom to verify their sex and if anyone appeared physically male and was dressed as a woman they were arrested but many of the drag queens and trans women in the bar they refused to go with the officers good they said no we're tired fuck you the many of the men that were in line refused to show the officers their id and so police were like you know what fuck it all of you are coming to jail
0: So they're just, like, mass arresting everyone.
1: Yeah. But what they don't realize is, while that's going on in the bar, the people that had escaped didn't leave. They were still outside the bar. And a lot of other people in the community, in the neighborhood, were coming out and coming outside the bar. And they weren't dispersing, because they were tired and fed up with this constant police harassment, this social discrimination. And so they they surrounded the bar and especially as more people were getting arrested getting manhandled beaten the crowd was getting angry and not that long after the raid started there was about 100 150 people outside the bar and when they were seeing the members of their community getting getting beaten getting thrown into cop cars it like lit the spark that's not how the phrase goes
0: it like Something sparked like the that. it sparked the fire it, it lit the yeah. match it it was the last straw
1: Oh well, it it started. It it started a little little slower and then it blew because pennies then beer bottles are being thrown at the police car.
0: Oh, Wasn't it the pennies cuz they were like paying them paying them off or something?
1: Yeah. And I mean as the police are like coming out of the bar with people, people in the crowd are like posing, exaggeratingly like saluting the police and just basically like calling the fuck out.
0: Like so much sass.
1: Yes. And there was one person that was quoted as saying, wrists were limp, hair was primped, and reactions to the applause were classic. And at one point, an officer hit a lesbian woman over the head as he was forcing her into the police van. And she looked at the crowd and she shouted, like, why don't you do something? And that, that lit the match. The crowd started to fight because the officer then picked her up and just threw her into the car And so at that moment, it became explosive, and the Stonewall Raid had become the Stonewall Riots. So at this point, the riot had begun, and the police, they called reinforcements in, and they barricaded themselves inside the bar. And this police barricade, it was repeatedly breached, and the bar was set on fire. But the fire department got there, they put out the flames. It wasn't like a, we're gonna burn the police to death in, in there. It wasn't like, the entire building in flames kind of thing. The fire was put out. The police were rescued from inside Stonewall. And the crowd that night did start to disperse. And when the fire department arrived, the riot squad or the TPF, the like riot police showed up and that's like they dispersed the crowd. And Bob Kohler, he is a pioneering gay rights activist. He was actually walking his dog by... Stonewall that night, and he saw the riot police arrive. And he was quoted as saying, I had been in enough riots to know the fun was over. The cops were totally humiliated. This never, ever happened. They were angrier than I guess they had ever been, because everybody else had rioted, but the fairies were not supposed to riot. And no group had ever forced cops to retreat before. So the anger was just enormous. And I mean, they wanted to kill.
0: Hey, don't fuck with the LBGTQ community.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. For fucking real. So all day the next day, or I guess that day since this started like early morning hours, all day on Saturday, June 28th, people came to look at the Stonewall Inn. It, It was burned. It was blackened. Graffiti was on the walls. And the graffiti said things like, Drag power. They invaded our rights, support gay power, and legalize gay bars. And at this end, I mean, the riots are happening. Like, the riots happened for many days. Yeah. And one of the things that was really remarkable to so many that were witnessing it is this sudden exhibition of gay affection in public. It was described by one witness as... From going to places where you had to knock on a door and speak to someone through a peephole to get in. But we were just out. We were in the streets. For the first time ever, there were people outside, not in secret, holding hands, kissing, dancing.
0: Being happy. Expressing,
1: being being themselves. The next night, thousands of people gathered in front of Stonewall and Stonewall opened up again. They were like, we're not going away from the community. And also Stonewall Inn, it's on Christopher Street. So Christopher Street will come into play Mm -hmm. a lot. There's your geography lesson. Mm -hmm. I've never been to Stonewall. I've been to New York multiple times, and I want to go to Stonewall so bad. It's still there today.
0: I thought it was gone. I'm so embarrassed. I lived there for two years, and I had no idea it was still there. I know the area. I probably walked by multiple times and had no idea.
1: I mean, that's the thing. It looks like just a bar. But it's still there, it's still open. God, we need to go. So by this point, Christopher Street is completely packed with people who are there at the at Stonewall. It's the center, and they were spilling into the different blocks. basically all of Greenwich Village was the site of the Stonewall riot this night. and one of the people there was Sylvia Rivera, and she saw a friend of hers jump on a nearby car. That was trying to like drive through the crowd of protesters and run people over because that hasn't changed. And so the crowd was like, fuck you guys. And was like rocking the car with people in it because they tried to drive through the crowd. It's New York, go two blocks over and around.
0: Don't drive through a
1: crowd. Another one of Rivera's friends was Marsha P. Johnson. And... She climbed on a lamppost and dropped her heavy purse onto the hood of a police car, shattering its windshield.
0: That's a heavy purse. Shatter the windshield? Oh, yes. Was it full of bricks? Shatter the
1: windshield. Probably bricks. I would not be surprised. Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson are, they're both trans women of color, and I'm going to go into them a lot here in a little bit, but they are so integral to the gay rights movement and the Stonewall riots and everything. And there is a documentary, The Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson. On Netflix. I haven't watched it yet. And I, doing my research, I was like, I need to.
0: You should have. I mentioned it again. It's so good, Tyler. Oh my gosh. I watched that a few years ago, a couple years ago, I guess, at this point. And that for me was part of my introduction to Stonewall. I, like you, had heard of it and I was like, oh yeah, Stonewall. It was like, you know, the. I actually think I thought it was also the start of the Pride Parades. Watching that documentary opened my eyes so much, and it's absolutely worth a watch.
1: Yes. And Marsha P. Johnson, she is this tall, powerful, black trans woman, and... Her
0: smile, it literally lights up the sky. Like, just this beautiful, happy smile. It's literally like the grin that goes from, like, ear to ear, ear, basically. Just so happy. I see why people adored
1: her. Mm -hmm. She is so fucking inspirational. The Stonewall riots that were happening lasted about five days, sometimes... They were huge. Sometimes there was just a few hundred people kind of protesting, but it was five days of riots. And a lot of historians, they see the Stonewall riots as this spontaneous protest against this perpetual police harassment and this social discrimination that is just plaguing the LGBTQ community. And there had been other protests by gay groups before, but Stonewall was the first time that lesbians, gays... Transgender people united behind this common cause and became the community. I mean, this really, the Stonewall riots, as much as it is a start of the gay rights movement, it's really a start of the LGBTQ community. This is when we united and became a community. And this happened because of the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, and also with that lens, it became this like galvanizing force. It wasn't just a riot it wasn't just new york it became the the match that lit the spark what is the frick? i'm so bad with phrases when i drink wine
0: no it's not just when you drink wine it's the wow. the light that the match that lit the pile of leaves just kidding i made that up
1: the match that you know it blew up not just in the u.s worldwide
0: the one i keep thinking of there. is the straw that broke the camel's back but that's not exactly what you're going for
1: no, I just keep thinking of the word spark plug, and that's also not what we're going for. <laughs> there's a spark, there's an explosion, whatever that phrase is, all of you are screaming it at us right now. But one of the most important parts of the Stonewall Rights, the LGBTQ rights movement, is how important Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were. They were two of the most important key figures in them. And let's be fucking real, there is so much transphobia and racism rampant in the gay community. The fact that it is a well-known thing of like, oh, is he the kind of guy who his grinder profile, no blacks, no femmes, no Asians? And it's a thing.
0: Oh my god, that's disgusting.
1: And people the fact that it's a almost like a meme level, how common it is, the it's just a preference. Fuck you.
0: That's racism.
1: It's racism. It's transphobia. And the reason that there is a grinder, the reason that you are able to put a pride flag on your desk is because of trans women of color leading the riots and then continuing the momentum in the movement beyond just the Stonewall riots. It disgusts me how transphobic and sexist and racist... The gay community can be sometimes i'm not saying that as a whole let's be real it's a systemic issue just like country as a whole like it's not oh there's a couple bad apples there's a couple racist people that are gay like no it's it's the it's the community as a whole like
0: well yeah and that's what i was gonna say this is not just within the gay community this is a it's rampant in our country
1: and it just it makes me so angry how the community i'm a part of that i identify with that went through so much of this homophobia and being forced to hide and being killed for being yourself is still going to perpetuate racism and transphobia and i'm like you're doing the thing that 50 years ago you like would have killed you you're continuing this what the fuck is wrong with you
0: well and that brings up such a valid point because that's how deep-rooted this issue is and these issues like that is why we're bringing this up that's why we're having this conversation because it's everywhere
1: it is so members of the lgbtq community who are listening also everyone who's listening do not ever forget that the reason that we have marriage equality that i don't have to get fired at work that's not illegal for me to be gay is because of the fight of trans women of color they did this they fought this, so many people joined them, but they led this and continued the fight. They didn't fizzle out after the Stonewall riots. It continued, and after Stonewall, which I see a lot of uh, times people call it Stonewall uprising and don't want to use the word riots. I think we should use the word riots. it's what it is yeah it's it's horrifying and outrageous because it is. yeah, and after Stonewall. Marsha P. Johnson, she joined the Gay Liberation Front, and she participated in the first Christopher Street Liberation Pride Rally that happened on the first anniversary of Stonewall in June of 1970. So, June 28th, 1970, it's the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Thousands of people came to Greenwich Village, and this evolved into an annual event and became the Pride Parade. This was the first Pride Parade.
0: That's what I knew it had to do with Stonewall, obviously, but that's where it comes in.
1: And that is why Pride Month is June, why we have Pride Parades in June, because of this moment that was remembering the first anniversary of the riots, of the beginnings of our community and the push for our rights. And one of the people that was there described it as there were no floats, no music, no boys and briefs. The cops turned their backs on us to convey their disdain, but the masses of people kept carrying signs and banners, chanting and waving to surprised onlookers, and it was only after the march that these gay pioneers realized what might be possible. There had never been a gay community before. I mean, even, you know, just before the riots when, you, you know, you could go to a gay bar, You can go to the gay bar, but that's it. You have to, one, be hidden, but two, you might maximum be around 200 people. There was never any moment where gay people could be together. People, trans people, could be together and be open and outside out loud and be themselves. And the first Pride Parade was just that. One of Marsha P. Johnson's most, like, notable actions happened in August of 1970. She staged a sit-in protest at Weinstein Hall at NYU, along with other members of the Gay Liberation Front, because administrators had canceled a dance when they found out a couple gay organizations were some of the sponsors.
0: Oh, hell no! hmm Oh, that's my so, alma mater!
1: I know, y'all fucked up in the 70s. But also... Who didn't fuck up? Also yours and still mine. Alma mater is OU. And for fucking real, all y'all fucked up in the 70s.
0: We all fucked up all the time.
1: For real. After this sit-in and kind of organizing this, Marsha and Sylvia, they co-founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries organization. And one thing I do want to note is the phrase transvestite, it's not appropriate today The correct term is transgender. Also, I am cisgendered. So if you are trans and you're like, fuck yeah, I'm reclaiming the word transvestite. Like, yes, yes, absolutely. But I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm going to be saying the word transvestite. I understand it's not an appropriate word today, but it was the word used then by themselves, what they call themselves and like the name of these organizations and the name they owned kind of thing. So, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries Organization, also known as STAR, it offered services and advocacies for homeless queer youth, and it also fought for the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act in New York, also known as SONDA, and that prohibited the discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in employment, housing, public accommodations, education, credit, and civil rights. Because, again, at this time, oh, if you're gay, no, we're not going to sell you this house. Oh, you're gay, you're not going to get a loan. Yeah. You're gay, no, I'm sorry, you can't use this homeless shelter. And this act was prohibiting that. Right. So the two of them... Marsha and Sylvia, they became this very visible presence at gay liberation marches and other radical political actions. And in 1973, they were banned from participating in the Gay Pride Parade by the Gay and Lesbian Committee. What? Who were, like, administering the event. Yeah, Because they weren't going to allow drag queens, which they meant trans people, at the marches because they're giving us a bad name. Literally, this is four years after Stonewall. They are the fucking reason you're having a parade and they were banned.
0: That's ridiculous.
1: But what they did, they said, fine. And they went in front of the parade and they marched in front of it and headed the parade. I love that. They are so fucking badass. And during a gay rights rally at New York City Hall in the 70s, a reporter asked Marcia, like, why is why is your group demonstrating? Like, why are y'all here? And she grabbed the microphone and shouted, darling, I want my gay rights now. Marcia and Sylvia went on to establish the Star House, and that was a shelter for gay and trans street kids in 1972. And they paid for the rent with it by money they made from sex workers. Mm-hmm. Because both of them were sex workers, they'd engaged in survival sex, which is a term I learned during my research. And it's, it's when someone works as a sex worker for food or shelter. And they took the money they earned and paid rent on the star house so that gay and trans youth could have a roof over their heads. The
0: generosity of these women is so inspiring.
1: Oh, yeah. So, while the Star House, it wasn't, like, focused on performance, Marsha was a drag mother to the Star House. And drag culture is one I didn't realize until way too recently that it's not just, you know, like, oh, yeah, like, gays dressing up in, like, as, like, sexy women and, like, lip syncing. Like, I mean, that is a part of it. That showy and, camp performance but so much of the community and especially black and latino lgbtq community members it gets a, such a huge part of it i need to see the the movie paris is burning so bad it goes into a lot of the lgbtq community member like people of color members and the ballroom and drag culture of the time it's also if you are a of the lgbtq community it's one of the most important Movies to see, and I, I have not seen it myself, so I'm a shit. <laughs> but it's Paris is burning, watch it. But Marsha, she's the drag mother of the house, and this is a tradition as like choosing a mother in the black and Latino LGBTQ community. So, Marsha, she worked to provide food and clothing and emotional support and this family structure to. Her young drag queens and the trans women and non-binary and other homeless youths of the community that were living there and living on the docks and on the streets in the area. For those of y'all that aren't familiar with, like, drag culture, like, a drag queen has a drag mother who, like, teaches them kind of thing. But it's not just, like, a work mentor who teaches you, like, oh, do these moves. And it's a family structure and it's born out of. The Black and Latino LGBTQ community. Yeah,
0: it's, it's more than a work mentor. It's like a life mentor. Like a parent would yes, be. Yes, and
1: it's, I mean, it's it's a mother. It's a parent, and, yeah. And that's what it is because so many of these people don't have mothers, don't have family right. because they are kicked out. So, I mean, the term drag mother, it's not just like, oh, like, respective term. It's that is your mother figure. And Marsha was there. She worked so hard to support and provide and be anything and everything she could for her community and for those vulnerable members who needed her. And shortly after the Pride Parade in 1992, her body was found floating in the Hudson River. And police, initially they said it was that it was a suicide, that Marsha had killed herself. But her friends and other members of the community knew that was not true. Because one, they knew she wasn't suicidal. And also, The back of her head had a massive wound. And I do want to note here that, yes, the rates of suicide and self-harm are much higher in the trans community and in the LGBTQ community as a whole. I don't think I've ever met another member who hasn't either had serious thoughts or had a suicide attempt in their lives. I mean, it's just a part of it kind of thing. And it is much more so for those in the trans community. But also, the rate of domestic violence and sexual assault and attacks is so much higher. So, I know a lot of people say, like, oh, well, I mean, she was trans. And so, it's like, oh, suicide makes sense. It's like, you know what makes a lot more sense, because statistics are much higher too, is that she was murdered. Because trans women of color are murdered all the Fucking time. Yeah. And years after her death, Sylvia said in an interview that when Marcia died, part of me went with her. And several people said with Marsha's death, I mean the police have been like, oh, it's a suicide, closed, no investigation. But several people came forward and said they'd seen her being harassed by a group of people who'd also been like robbing people. And a witness saw a neighborhood resident. Fighting with Marsha on July 4th of 92. So like not long before her body was found. During the fight, he used this homophobic slur. And then later he went to a bar and bragged to someone that he killed a drag queen named Marsha.
0: What the fuck is wrong with someone to not only do that, but then brag about it?
1: For real. So there's there's no part of me that thinks Marsha P. Johnson was a victim of suicide. No, She was murdered. And in November of 2018, an activist named Mariah Lopez, she succeeded in getting the New York Police Department to finally reopen the case as a possible homicide. And after the NYPD reopened Marsh's case, they reclassified her death from suicide to undetermined. And in 2016, Victoria Cruz, she's part of the Anti-Violence Project, she also was like working to get Marsha's case reopened. And she succeeded in getting access to a lot of these unreleased documents and witness statements. And she was like, I'm going to fucking do the groundwork and get more interviews with witnesses and friends and other activists and police who worked on the case or, you know, been on the force at the time. And basically, we're going to... fucking investigate Marcia's murder and some of her work was filmed in the documentary the death and life of marsha p johnson so literally fucking watch it <laughs> right now yeah not right now there's still episode to go but
0: <laughs> yeah that's like i said earlier this documentary is incredible
1: i mean i depending on when we finish recording
0: you should watch it after yeah it's gonna be late but... honestly
1: depending <laughs> on when we finish recording as if my ass can't be totally fine going to bed at 3 a.m. Like, let's be real. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to watch it. I don't think I've ever heard of someone who is is as inspiring and, like, directly impactful to my community and who I am as Marsha and Sylvia. And Sylvia Rivera, she died early in the morning on February 19th of 2002. Uh, She had complications from liver cancer. And an activist by the name of Ricky wilchens she said that in many ways sylvia was the rosa parks of the modern transgender movement and that's a term that wasn't even coined until two decades after stonewall
0: the movement
1: the word transgender oh i mean she she was the leader of the movement and the trans rights and she did so much for our community as a whole but especially the trans men and women Stonewall pretty soon became this symbol of resistance to social and political discrimination. And it inspired a coming together and a building of a community for the LGBTQ community. And within two years of the Stonewall riots, there were gay rights groups in every single major American city, also in Canada, Australia, and all over Western Europe. This opened the door For us to be able to come out of the closet.
0: Yeah. It opened the closet door.
1: Yeah. And I love this line in my source. It said, acceptance and respect from the establishment. I'm
0: I'm so sorry. (laughs) I accidentally hit my bottle.
1: (laughs) I heard. It said, acceptance and respect from the establishment were no longer being humbly requested, but angrily and righteously demanded.
0: No more requests, only demands.
1: No more fucking requests. There are times when you cannot ask for your life. You have to fight for it. And this is why, and when people with the riots going on now say things like, Oh, I mean, yes, we should support Black people, but the damage and violence. I'm like, this is representative of, this is how you get heard because there comes to a point when anything less than violence is not going to get the attention and eye and it's difficult. I mean it's an uncomfortable thing because mm-hmm. I hate violence as a whole. I mean even even to the point of like how much our movies and entertainment is like soaked in like violence and murder and shit. Like I hate it. But there is no part of me that doesn't fully understand when violence and when writing is justified because because what changes took place when football players were kneeling? I mean, first off, white people freaked the fuck out at that. Right. But you know, what took place? What do you expect? Everyone is is saying, like, well, if it was just peaceful protests and only it's been peaceful protests is in protest forever.
0: Yeah. Well, and Ty, you and I were talking about the First Amendment the other day, where we have the right to freedom of speech, peaceful protest, like freedom of writing. What was the other thing? There was Re- another.
1: Religion and press. Religion
0: and press. And yet, those are the four things that we are constantly stripped of the rights of. that, Or that not, not we. I said we, and I'm going to call myself out. People of color and transgender and gay people, they can be stripped of those rights.
1: Well- One thing that I think is so important to understand for myself, for other members of the LGBTQ community, is that as a gay, cisgendered white man, yeah, there is some shit that it makes my life harder, but I can also walk into a room and the thing that I might get judged or victimized for is not immediately known. Right. If I needed to, I can hide that I'm gay. It sucks, but I can absolutely fucking do that. I don't wear what others will weaponize against me out in the open on my skin. I'm not a person of color. I'm not trans. I don't. I have the ability as a white cisgendered man to, when when I need to, fucking skate under oppression. Yeah. And people of color, many trans people can't. I just, I hear a lot of... Cisgendered members of the gay community being like, well, no, I totally get exactly what it's like. I'm, I'm also a minority. I have also faced. No, yes, we faced a lot of shit. We, we face shit every day. It's hard, and I in no way forget that it is much harder for other people. But I also know that I still can hide. I could walk into the Westboro Baptist Church. Why you would? I don't know. I mean, no, but like, <laughs> but a person of color could not walk into yeah. a KKK meeting. No,
0: I, I, I totally get what you mean.
1: It's at the, like the, when I was saying earlier, the fight or flight instinct, I actually have the option of flight.
0: It's not just all when flight. When it comes
1: to, exactly. When it comes to the discrimination against me, I can make the I can actively make the choice of, oh, I need to act straight in interviews. It's fucked up. that has to happen. But also I have that option. And so many others don't. Right. You cannot forget that. And the reason that I don't have to is because of trans women of color who today couldn't do that because they fought at Stonewall to give me the ability to do this. And in 1999, the US National Park Service placed the Stonewall Inn on the National Register of Historic Places. And in 2016, President Barack Obama designated the site of the Stonewall Riots as a national monument. And this fight for equal rights for the LGBTQ community, it has been long and it's going to continue for a long time. Thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling of Lawrence v. Texas, sex between two people of the same sex finally became legal in the United States on June 26th. 2003, I was 10. There is not a gay person alive today that is an adult that was born when being gay is legal in the U.S. The oldest person right now, if you're listening to this when it came out, that was born when being gay was legal across the U.S. is 17 right now.
0: That's gut-wrenching.
1: Yeah. In 2015, same-sex marriage was finally legalized across the U.S., and I remember the day it was legalized. I was at work, and it was one of the happiest moments of my life, but also I knew that I, I couldn't really react at work. I, I couldn't make it a thing. So I didn't talk about it. I didn't act happy because I could be out at work, but I couldn't be, like, flamboyant. People could know I'm gay, but I would never, I would never risk Having a rainbow flag on my desk or getting excited over the fact that I could finally get married.
0: That's so unfair that you felt like you couldn't celebrate.
1: Well, I mean, and it, it wasn't, marriage is not just marriage. It's the fact that if I was with someone and they went to the hospital, I could go into the room with them. Yeah. Now I could, I could start a family. It, it's huge, but I didn't feel like I could celebrate because it fired for being gay. And how can I be 100% sure, regardless of how much I like my boss, how much I trust them, how can I be 100% sure that there's not going to be one that's like, okay, this is too much. Pack up your desk. You're gay. I can't do anything about that. It's legal. I can't get a lawyer. Also, I was in Oklahoma. I can't even make a social protest without half the fucking state liking it and being like, yep, that's how it should be. And so last week last week 2020 was when the supreme court decision barred people from being able to be fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity like i think a lot of people don't realize that yeah i think a lot of people assumed like oh yeah civil rights protections like you can't be fired for your gender for your race sexuality your gender identity i think a lot of people assumed but no in in a, some states, some cities, when I lived in Seattle, you know there there were state laws and city laws. But I mean, when when I moved to Austin from Seattle, there was a not insignificant part of me that knew I was now moving into a state where I could lose my job because I told someone I went on a date with a guy. This is huge. Yeah, and it happened a week ago. It has been fifty one years since the Stonewall riots. And there is so much more work to be done. But I need to stress, like, we would not be here. We would not be able to live, we being the LGBTQ community as a whole, we would not be able to live as who we are without the work and the determination of trans women of color. And I can say without a doubt that I owe them my life because I fought my sexuality and tried to keep it hidden for six years. And that broke me more than anything I have ever faced. And so I am positive that if I had to continue living that way for the rest of my life, I I wouldn't have survived. I would not be alive today if that was my reality. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and so many others Changed the world. They fought for themselves, their community, and they fought for a future 10 year old boy from Oklahoma who was so filled with terror at the thought of being gay to be able to grow up into a 27 year old man who can say, I am gay and I am proud of it.
0: Well, obviously, (laughs) you made me cry here. We're cutting this out. No, I don't (laughs) think we have to cut it out. This is real. Like, this is life this is i know this is how this impacts people and i want i want everyone to understand that we're talking about people's lives here and and that's why this episode is so important and why we want to talk about these things because it's not easy it's hard but we can be better together we just need to all come together and i i so much appreciate your raw honesty and yeah but just thank you so much for being so pure and real and and sharing your story and sharing your history. And how exciting is that to celebrate your history?
1: Well, and it's just when people say, why is there a gay rights parade and not a straight rights parade? This is what the gay rights parade represents. Yeah. This is what pride is. And I say gay rights. I mean gay and transgender and gender nonconforming and everything, every part of the LGBTQ community, every person who has been discriminated against because of who they love or who they are. That's why we have a pride parade. Yes. It makes me so angry that as a community, we've been through all that and understood all that. And yet... Our community is still so plagued with racism, so much transphobia, so much discrimination, and the people doing it. You you know what it's like. Yeah. You know everything you've suffered. That's a part of what these other members of your community have gone through. Who are people of color or trans, and yet you're perpetuating that. Like I don't understand. It makes me so angry. We as a community would not be where we are without trans women of color, and we cannot forget that. We cannot forget how the only reason we can be who we are is because of people who have different experiences than us, are different than us, and yet gave us the opportunity to be us. Yeah. So, that is my case. That is the Stonewall Riots, and... I need more wine and yet I my bottle's empty and I have about a glass and a half left. So,
0: you know what's interesting? I never even once saw you pick up your glass and take a drink. I just was so focused on your your what you were telling me.
1: Oh, I was I was drinking the entire damn time. And uh there there might be a hot second in Brittany's case when I make her pause and I go open up Strongbow because I don't have any wine left, <laughs> but I might get a Strongbow after. But with that said, Brittany, what case are you doing today?
0: The case that I'm going to be covering in today's episode is the 1992 LA riots. Like you, I have I have a few resources, not as many as you had, but One of the top ones is actually the LA 92 documentary on Netflix. And this is a documentary directed by TJ Martin and Daniel Lindsay, and it came out in 2017. And I do want to say, I, I really implore all of you to watch this documentary. It's uncomfortable, but it is our history. We should all be aware of what happened in 1992 during the LA riots. And honestly, to completely understand what happened, there are some things you actually need to see. You can't just read about it. You can't just hear about it. You need to visually see what happened. And you need to hear the progression of how how it started and how it ended. You need to hear that story. One quote from this documentary that It was an interesting scene because it's a scene and it's showing one of the shelters for people who had lost their homes in the riots. And the news is on. And just for a brief moment, you hear the newscaster say, racism in America is as American as apple pie. And I wanted to vomit. So when I say it's difficult, I know when I say this documentary is difficult and uncomfortable, it is. But that's how imperative it is to expose yourself to this and to know and to educate yourself. Watch a documentary. I spanned it over a couple of days. I also read an article from NPR by Anjuli Sastry and Karen Grisby-Bates, an article from the LA Times by the LA Times staff, and an article from the Cornell Law School. So the beginning of the race riots, it all started with the assault of Rodney King. So in March 1991, Rodney King, who was a black man on parole for robbery, He led police on a high speed chase through Los Angeles, and he would later be charged with driving under the influence. When police finally stopped him, King was ordered out of the car, and the LAPD officers started kicking him repeatedly, and they were beating him with their batons, and this lasted for 15 minutes. But what they didn't know is that there was a neighbor who was getting this entire incident on home video. George Holliday took the video from the balcony of his Lakeview Terrace apartment, and it shows the group of police officers beating a man with nightsticks, kicking him as a crowd of onlookers, or or like officer onlookers, watch. And this clip later aired on KTLA, which is one of the local, local news stations. And when I say there were police surrounding watching this happen, I'm not saying one or two. There was a dozen. More than a dozen. And they're just like commenting on what's happening.
1: I will say, I don't know a lot of the history about the LA riots. I know some and kind of a general context from researching the O.J. Simpson case, the murder of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. But as far as what the riots were, more than just kind of the surface level, I haven't educated myself on it.
0: Well... What I'm about to tell you when I go into the details about the LA riots, you're going to understand why OJ Simpson's defense team had such a strong case and why they were able to say what they did and why he was found not guilty. I still don't agree with that. I think there is a lot of evidence against him. And in far too many cases against black men, there isn't evidence. Once you listen to everything I'm about to tell you, You're going to understand why that was an effective defense. So Rodney King's injuries resulted in skull fractures, broken bones and teeth, and permanent brain damage. So this is not just a bully on the schoolyard beat up. They were beating the shit out of him.
1: They were beating him to death.
0: Yes. Four officers, three of them white, were charged with excessive use of force. Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, Officer Theodore Brasino... Officer Timothy Wind, and Officer Lawrence Powell. Their trial was moved out of LA into a suburb in Ventura County. Ventura County was a predominantly white community. I think, I think in the documentary they said like one to 3% of the people were black. After the trial, jurors were not convinced that an 81 second videotape of the incident represented the entire story and what happened. And so what at the beginning of this case was thought to be very open shut, it was actually resulted in, you know, the jury said this was an incident that was a reasonable expression of police control toward a black motorist.
1: Are you fucking kidding me?
0: I wish I was, but I'm not. That is what they said. So this verdict essentially declared a war in L.A. It was between races communities, Blacks in the LAPD, because it was made abundantly clear that Blacks were not receiving justice in America. So on April 29th, these acquittals were announced around 3 p.m. And then less than three hours later is when the riots started. Residents were setting fires, looting, destroying liquor stores, grocery stores, retail shops, and fast food restaurants. Light-skinned motorists, both white and Latino, were being targeted, and some of them were pulled out of their cars and beaten. There was fury, absolute fury over this not guilty verdict that, you know, it was something that was stoked by years of racial and economic inequality in the city. And so this fury, it turned into riots, it spilled into the streets, and it resulted resulted in five days of rioting in Los Angeles. In addition to that, it started this national conversation about racial and economic disparity and the use of force by the police, which is something that is continuing to this day. This is a conversation mm-hmm. that happened in nineteen ninety two. This is a conversation that happened yesterday. That's fucked up.
1: This is a conversation that happened a hundred years ago. This is I mean
0: This is a conversation that keeps happening over and over and over. And at what fucking point I mean, are we gonna do something about it?
1: For real. I mean, literally, police forces and, like, city and state and, like, organized police forces have roots from the Confederate South specifically to find escaped slaves. And once the Civil War was over and slavery was made illegal, to continue the oppression of Black people, to continue enforcing Jim Crow laws, specifically... You cannot separate the history of policing from its racist, targeted roots. No. And how those ideas continue to perpetuate today.
0: Exactly. One thing I do want to bring up, and I want to make sure this is understood, because it's not talked about enough. Not all of the protests that were happening in Los Angeles were violent. Some of it was peaceful. Some of it was at church gatherings. And, and this is how the response started. In downtown LA at the Parker Center, there were protesters peacefully chanting, no justice, no peace. But eventually, things did turn towards violence. The fires were started throughout the city. And the riots first began at an intersection in South Los Angeles, Florence, and Normandy, with rioters throwing cans, rocks, and bottles at cars. And this is when people were even being pulled from their vehicles, doors being ripped off their vehicles, cars set on fire, cars flipped over. But as people were being beaten, there were also people pulling them to safety. So I I just want to make it clear that violence was not on everyone's mind. And there were many people in the Black community that did not feel like this was the way to vent their frustrations. They did not feel like the violence was going to, to reach their end goal, because their businesses were also being destroyed. So this is what makes riots difficult and uncomfortable to talk about. Because at a certain point, you are not being listened to, and violence seems like the only answer. But you have to know that's not how everyone thinks. You know, it is this combination of protests violence riots and generally it all gets lumped into this same
1: sphere absolutely i mean i i mentioned it earlier i i hate violence and i very much stand by the old adage of like violence is never the answer Mm -hmm. but i'm i'm torn because i get it yeah yeah I understand. I saw it. I don't. That's probably someone wrote it on Facebook or something. But it was talking about the people who get so angry when protesters will like block the road, like block the interstates, and the cars that are stuck there are, like so angry that you just want to drive through them and like that's kind of the point. Like that's like that anger that you're feeling that I'm being impeded from being able to live my life. That's what they're feeling every day. That anger. So, I get it. I never want to say, like, violence is the answer. But at what point is it the only option? Because yeah. how many protests can you remember that caused change that were protests? That that, that were just, you know, holding up signs and doing whatever the oppressor says like this is what you're allowed to do this is okay abiding by that and sticking within that how many of those can you remember that that cause monumental change so i will never agree with people being hurt or any of that but what is there left to do because it's it's not a case of fighting it's of like it's fighting for your lives
0: yes there was a bystander terry barnett at florence and normandy this intersection the first night of the riots and terry remembers watching the cops drive by the rioters without stopping she and her boyfriend along with two other strangers all of them black helped rescue a white truck driver named reginald denny reginald was he was ripped out of his 18 wheeler beaten viciously by rioters around 6.45 p.m. So Terry and her boyfriend and the two strangers, they shoved Denny back into his truck and they drove him to the hospital. And this saved his life. She said there were four cops in each car that passed by, like when she saw the cops just driving by. They saw them. They saw what was going on. And she said it felt like they just looked right through them. They weren't stopping. They were not a part of the riots. They, They weren't doing anything. So then 911 calls start coming in for the violence that's uh, being reported around the city. But police were not deployed immediately. They were actually ordered to stay out of the area of this intersection. LAPD Chief Daryl Gates announced early in the afternoon on April 29th that his officers had the situation under control. But it would later be reported that the city was they, they were not adequately prepared for the riots. So it's like they were buying their time while everything was happening they're, and doing they, they yeah, were doing they're nothing. bullshitting oh they're totally bullshitting yeah they i think set up a command center a few blocks away where they were trying to come up with their plan but again they're driving right through the riots doing nothing so basically you know there was no anticipation of or official plan in the police department for how to handle this major social unrest especially on this scale And then angry demonstrators started gathering outside the police headquarters, and the TV stations started airing scenes of violence near Florence and Normandy, and protesters were just chanting, like, guilty, guilty, and this is what was happening right outside of police headquarters, and this was more of a peaceful protest at the beginning. Protesters were speaking out against the violence. But the fighting ensued. However, that night, Gates went to speak at a fundraiser in West Los Angeles. And this was the LAPD chief. He spoke at a fundraiser and he ordered the cops to retreat. So again, they're not doing anything. Police did not respond to incidents of looting and violence until about three hours after the original rioting started. Gates returned to the city And he went to the emergency response center around 8.30 p.m. after his fundraiser. And Gates and Mayor Tom Bradley, they had not spoken to each other directly for more than a year before the unrest. And one thing, Tom Bradley was a Black elected official. And I believe, I I don't think I'm making this up, I think he was one of the first in California. So their relationship was strained. And at 8.45 p.m., Mayor Tom Bradley calls a local state of emergency. Then later that night, the governor of California, Pete Wilson, at Bradley's request, orders the National Guard to activate 2,000 reserve soldiers. And the governor also announces a state of emergency. So for the rest of the night, the scene that broke out at Florence and Normandy repeated itself throughout the city. Police were wearing riot gear, arresting people. There was looting, violence, and destruction abundant throughout the city. And by sunrise on April 30th, these riots had completely disrupted life across the entire city, from downtown to the west side, from South LA to Pasadena. On the second day of the riots, by the end of the day, bus service was canceled citywide, Many employers were telling workers to stay home. Mail delivery was halted throughout South LA. And that's a wow. yeah, that's a big fucking deal. People were like standing outside the post office trying to get their mail.
1: I mean, it it's one of those things that like it can seem so little mail delivery doesn't get halted. Exactly. Like that the, the there's the what the post office thing. They say it's like rain or shine, or I don't know. It's the male person's motto. Sorry, people who know it, I don't. But I mean, that's a thing. Like mail is delivered in war zones, in any situation. It's it's like one of the last things to stop.
0: Exactly. So
1: just like the fact that they stopped. I mean, that's all I could say.
0: I know. Professional baseball and basketball games were canceled. Schools were closed throughout LA and in Inglewood, Compton, and Linwood. And protesters were starting to demand a response from President George H.W. Bush. This was also an election year.
1: Oh, yeah. This is April. This is, what, seven months before the election. I, I think 92, I think. Clinton. Yeah,
0: it was Bill Clinton. So writing oh, continued... For another day. Another thing to bring up: the reaction to the acquittal in South Central Los Angeles that it was particularly violent. At that time, more than half the population in South LA was black, and tensions had already been growing in the neighborhood in the years leading up to the riots. The employment rate was about fifty percent. There was a drug epidemic that was ravaging the area. And gang activity and violent crime was very
1: high. Well, and also this acquittal, it essentially is just saying, like, this is a government-sanctioned beating. Like, this is just a physical embodiment and got national attention of shit that the community is dealing with every fucking day.
0: Yeah, it just happened to be caught on video.
1: Exactly. And it's... And the fact that it's caught on video... And still acquitted. It's it's literally saying, like, oh, no, we know this is happening. And?
0: Exactly. And that's what I'm thinking, because, like, the fact that the jury was like, oh, I know that we saw, like, a video of this happening, but that's not enough. And I'm like, at what point is that not enough? There also was another contributing factor, though, The same month as Rodney King's beating, a Korean store owner in South LA shot and killed a young 15-year-old black woman named Letitia Harlins, who was accused of trying to steal orange juice. But it was later discovered that Letitia was clutching the money to pay for the juice when she was killed. She was shot in the back of the head. The jury found the Korean store owner guilty of voluntary manslaughter, which was an offense that carried a maximum prison sentence of 16 years, and the jury was recommending that maximum sentence. However, the trial judge, Joyce Carlin, did not accept the jury's sentencing recommendation and instead sentenced the woman to five years of probation, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine.
1: She... Was murdered for paying for her orange juice. And let's completely side note, because it's not any part of what actually happened. Let's say someone did steal orange juice and they get murdered for it. Right. Are you fucking kidding me? And then I didn't know that judges could do that, actually. I didn't realize that judges could be like, yep, that's what you were charged, that's what they've decided, you know, jury of your peers. You know, actually, though, this. Are you kidding me? Everything that could have gone right to serve justice, which, I mean, shit, the fact that it's voluntary manslaughter means not, but the fact that things lined up for this person who deserved to be charged and go to jail for this actually did for fucking once. And then, nope, that's still not enough.
0: I know. And there was definitely already tension with the Korean and Black communities because in South LA, it was a predominantly Black community and all of the shops and stores and business owners were Korean. So there was, like, this... This unrest between the two races was already there. But this incident heightened those tensions between Koreans and Blacks. And it intensified the Black community's frustration with the criminal justice system. They were, like you were just saying, literally like the jury found her guilty and wanted to give her the maximum sentence. And the judge was like, nah, here's a fine and some probation and 500 bucks.
1: Also, the The discrepancy between the recommendation and what it is. Like, 16 years in prison to probation and fine. It's not even like the judge was like, oh, well, assuming circumstances, 12 years in prison. Still fucked up, still not okay, but took it down to, like, basically a no punishment. Yeah. Not basically, literally a no punishment.
0: Brought it down to something that's a mere inconvenience. So a lot of the looting and destruction was happening to Korean-owned businesses during the LA riots. At this time, the community's anger was also deepening against the LAPD. Black people said they did not feel protected during times of need, but instead they reported being harassed without cause by the LAPD. And this was something that was going on during the riots and well before, as we have discussed.
1: And well beyond. I mean- Stop and frisk laws. I we saw it, John Oliver episode. I feel like I say I bring up John Oliver in almost every episode, but he mentioned a statistic and the New York stop and frisk. It was like 59% of the people that were stopped and frisk were black and like 20% were Hispanic or Latinx. Like it's so targeted and his. God, what did he, what was his analogy? Oh, he he said what you'd have to do as a white person would be like doing cocaine off your dashboard to actually get stopped by police. That's so real.
0: It is. There was very little police support in Koreatown. And so owners started taking protection into their own hands and they began arming themselves. And so when people were looting and breaking into their shops, like they started shooting. The police weren't there; they weren't protecting Koreatown, and so the business owners decided they would.
1: I don't understand the mindset of property before people. I don't either, and I, I never have. I know for a fact, and because it's something that, you know, I've been asked multiple times, like, "You don't own a gun. What if someone robs you?" And I'm like, "Let them rob me. Nothing I own is worth." killing someone over like how, how is stealing or property in anyone's mind above a person's life
0: on may 1st which was the third day of the riots rodney king actually attempted to publicly appeal to los angeles residents and ask them to stop fighting so he stood outside of beverly hills courthouse with his lawyer And he gave a short but very moving speech. And he said, people, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we get along? And he asked them to to stop the violence. It was also this day that President Bush gave his statement. And he stated that he directed the Justice Department to begin conducting their own investigation into the officers just an hour after the verdict was read. And I listened to his address, and to be honest, it it was disgusting. It felt like he was acting like he was just now realizing that America has a problem with racism. And, And he said he would react with whatever force was necessary to restore peace. But the way it came out, he never once mentioned racism. He never once mentioned the true issues of what was happening in LA. It was more so about, we got to stop the violence. And to me, I feel like it means he missed the point. He completely missed the point or didn't care about the point.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, you texted me while you were doing your research and the fact that it just seeped with his white privilege that he can be like, This is a social problem and not understanding that this is a race problem and a a racism problem that has been facing America since it was founded.
0: Yeah. On May 3rd, the Reverend Jesse Jackson met with leaders in Koreatown to urge an end to the animosity between the Black community and the Korean community. Jackson went around the city from the beginning of the day until, like, well after midnight, pleading for an end to the violence and a renewal of hope. He met with the crowd at a post office on 43rd Street and Central Avenue. And the crowd was very weary, but he he met and prayed with victims of the riots at an Inglewood hospital, preached in a mostly white church in Pasadena, and then he also visited a lot of the black churches in the community as well. So the riots were covering the whole city, and this is the third day. And at one point, 916 structure fires were reported. But there were also protests to end the violence, and many peaceful protests were happening in Koreatown. It was on May 4th, with street corners still guarded by soldiers with rifles, the LA residents started to return to work and school, and the cleaning started. During the five days of riots, there were more than 50 riot-related deaths, including 10 people who were shot and killed by LAPD officers and the National Guard. More than 2,300 people were injured, and nearly 11,000 alleged looters and arsonists were arrested, and damages exceeded $1 billion. Of those arrested during the riots, 36% were Black, and 51% were Latino. There was also a citywide curfew from Sunrise, or from Sunset to Sunrise, that was announced during the riots. Like I mentioned, mail delivery stopped, and most residents, they couldn't go to work or school. More than a 1,000 buildings were damaged and destroyed, and about 2,000 Korean-run businesses were also damaged and destroyed. The curfew lifted on May 4th, and residents started slowly going back to their everyday routines. To this day, the LA riots remain the most destructive civil disturbance in American history. On May 11th, former FBI Director William H. Webster, he was appointed to direct an investigation into the LAPD And their heavily criticized response to the rioting, looting, and violence that swept the city after the verdicts in the Rodney King beating. And on October 21st, the findings of the commission, which was headed by this former FBI director, centered around a massive failure of LAPD and city hall leaders to adequately plan for the civil disorder prior to the verdicts being read. So basically, they were like hey, you didn't try to prepare for what could happen.
1: Well, and it's also just like saying you knew things were fucked up. We all know how fucked up things are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you should have known because of how racist and how fucked up and how targeted this shit is, you should have been prepared. So I'm like, they should have been, but also you saying that is directly like, you're addressing the problem without realizing it. Like
0: Yes, I agree. And, you know, the investigation also noted that the LAPD was extremely sluggish in their response to the violence, and this is what permitted the rioting to spread to wide areas of the city. So, like I told you, it took the LAPD three hours to even begin coming on scene, and while them coming on scene by no means bettered any- anything. It made it worse. The FBI was like, y'all had no plan and you did nothing. So they weren't even there to just stand watch, you know? Because like I said at the beginning, these started out as peaceful protests and violence broke out.
1: They should have been there from the beginning to protect the protesters.
0: Yes, And I feel like, number one, if they would have been there on the side of the protesters after that fucking disgusting verdict, that would have at least said something. But instead, they show up three hours later, and they're beating people, they're arresting people, they're ensuing more violence, like they're not, they're doing no good.
1: If the police are there to protect law and order, like we always hear, like it, That's why we have police. Protect law and order. The laws they should be protecting first and foremost are those in the Bill of Rights and the fucking Constitution. And so they should be there protecting the protesters regardless who the protesters are protesting against. And they should be there to protect the rights of literally everyone. Which means they shouldn't be carrying out these government sanctioned lynchings and these racially motivated beatings and attacks because if you're fucking there to provide law and order for america for the country that means you're there to provide that for everyone in this country
0: exactly on august 4th 1992 A federal grand jury indicted the four officers and charged them with violating Rodney King's constitutional rights. Powell, Brasino, and Wind were charged with willful use of unreasonable force in arresting Rodney King, and Kuhn was charged with willfully permitting the other officers to use unreasonable force during the arrest. So in April 1993, the four officers were put back on trial.
1: Wait, but what about the 12- officers that were just like watching or i guess the more than dozen officers that were just watching they're they're good to go oh, they,
0: they were never a part of any anything i know it's disgusting wow so a federal jury returned guilty verdicts against LAPD officers stacy coon and lawrence powell for violating rodney king's civil rights officers theodore Brasino and Timothy Wend were acquitted for their role in the March 3rd, 1991 arrest and beating, and a federal judge ordered Officer Lawrence Powell and Sergeant Stacy Kuhn to spend two and a half years in prison for violating Rodney King's civil rights, which was a sentence that was far less than was requested by prosecutors. And this was what brought this case to a very controversial finale.
1: Two and a half years. I mean, the rest of the others, they were fucking acquitted. Two and a half years. That was the longest sentence given. Yep. For what they did.
0: Yeah. So the Rodney King beating and the Los Angeles riots exploded out of social issues that we still haven't resolved today. The shocking video of Rodney King's beating, unfortunately, would just be the first of a lot of police brutality videos that would start to go viral. Police brutality and racial profiling are just as evident now. Think of places like Baltimore, Ferguson, other inner cities, as they were in 1992 in Los Angeles. And what is absolutely gut-wrenching is that these same things are still happening today, such as with George Floyd. Blacks are being killed by the police, and justice is not being served. The difference is not that this is happening more It's that it's being recorded and being shared publicly. So we all have to come face to face with the reality of the injustice and racism that is present in America.
1: Yes. I mean, the fact that there is a need for apps that are out there, that when you say, hello, officer, they start your phone's camera and microphone. Because that is the difference between life and death. That is the difference between justice and nothing for so many people those exist and people need them the fact that the the conversation of you need to know this when you interact with police because this is how you're going to stay alive is a conversation that black parents have to have to their children every single black family knows that conversation
0: yeah it's not the birds and the bees combo it's the what to do when confronted by a police officer conversation.
1: And the fact that as white people, if I got pulled over for a speeding ticket and I was in a pissy mood, I could be like, yeah, give me the ticket, whatever. Like, come on, give it to me. Thanks, bye. And never once think that I'm going to end this interaction dead.
0: Exactly. That is such a... That is such a point to make because we do that shit. I get pulled over and in my head, I'm like, okay, how do I get out of this? Do do I cry? Do I kind of flirt? Like, how am I going to get out of this ticket? And I broke the fucking law. I was speeding. And not once do I have to think about going to jail or being killed. And black people think about that every time they're pulled over.
1: The thing is, when I get pulled over, I'm annoyed. I'm not scared. And like, as a white person, I have the privilege to be annoyed at getting a ticket or even just like, oh, now I'm going to be late to wherever I was going and not scared. And that is my white privilege.
0: Yeah. Listen, Black people deserve better. All lives don't matter until Black lives matter because they are a part of all lives. And these riots and, and what we've talked about in this episode This is what oppression does to people. And if this is something that you don't understand, that is because you are lucky. Because it means you have not been oppressed.
1: And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off.
0: XOXO. Bye, you guys.
1: Bye.